Thank you guys. There was a lot of hugs and kisses that looked that inspires me for a great sermon in the book of Galatians because it's actually been kind of a, a rough book in the sense that Paul's been coming at us very hard, specifically at the at the Galatians. Um, and I want to let you know it's been very awesome to go through it. I want to also impart on you. I love you guys' questions that you have after the service. They've been really intense. If you need to email me for any of the answers, my name is Craig Zeman at Calvary CCM. <laughs> So if anybody has, no, just kidding. You can talk to me afterwards. But the questions have been, that have been coming out of this book have been phenomenal. We're going to continue our sermon series in the book of Galatians, chapter 3. And we'll start in verse 26. Um, and the title of the series is Grace Changes Everything. And that is the most important part of the sermon series that we're in right now. Grace Changes Everything. If you are interested in titles of a sermon, uh, the title of this sermon is From Slaves to Sons. From Slaves to Sons. Uh, what's really interesting about this particular book is that kind of, kind of is a summary of who we are as Christians. At one time, we were slaves to our sin, and now we are the adopted children of Jesus Christ, or through Jesus Christ. Uh, the original title that I had for the, this was, Why Don't You Just Grow Up Already?, Jackie stopped me before I turned it in and said, that's a little aggressive. Let's go with From Slaves to Sons. So I'm giving you the option to write whatever title you want. But this particular section of the Bible, and in fact, in this section of this particular book is about maturing in our relationship with Christ by properly diagnosing who we are under God. Um, I'm going to open this, this uh, sermon with this question. I want you to hear it. Uh, so you can kind of maybe write a little bit at the top if you're interested. What's the best way to describe your relationship with God? I'll give you two options. Are you a servant or are you a child of the Father? Now, some people have said to me, and I've thought all through the weekend is, Joey, that's a trick question. Because we're called to serve the Lord as he serves us. But I'm going to place it this way. When you came here today, were you excited to see your father? Or were you a slave to the moment because you're worried about how he might treat you if you miss church? Are you a slave to the tradition? Are you a slave to the ritual? Are you excited to see your dad? Amen. Amen. All right. This, I know this is going to be a good service already. So um, if you can join me. Uh, in verse 26, and I just want to remind you as we go through Galatians, you might ask, why are we picking these verses to stop and start at? Well, when Paul wrote this, he wrote a huge long letter, right? And so he didn't put chapters and verses. That's addresses for us to find verses quickly. Um, but he wrote a long, long letter. As you can see, it's a couple of chapters. I don't know if you've ever received an email from anybody and you were scrolling and then you were still scrolling and you're like, does this thing ever end? Can I just skip to the end? Well, no, in the book of, of Galatians, it's just a one long letter. They had to roll out the scroll and read the whole thing in front of the church, and so are we right now. So join me in verse 26. It says, so in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile nor uh, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. So what you're looking at in this particular part of the, the passage is 
uh, Paul is doing something that's almost considered revolutionary and radical. He is addressing everything that has made certain people feel a specific way as far as status. In some parts of Judaism, especially if you were ever to get into Jewish mysticism, you would not even be allowed to study certain uh, parts of their religion if you weren't of a certain age. So unless you were 40, had at least two kids, and were a guy, you wouldn't be allowed into that Bible study. And that would, be that, that would be the case. And why? Because that's a certain level of maturity and status, but they want to look at you a specific way. Paul is blowing that up. Paul is completely destroying that idea. He's saying, as you can see, if you go back to Romans 3.23, and so for all of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. All of us have the same level of punishment and wrath that is designated to us in our sin. And all of us have the same amount of Jesus that we need to save us. And there's a distinction there when I say that. All of us need the same amount of Jesus to save us from ourselves. There's nobody that's better or worse. And in fact, if you look at it, he says, there's no slave or free. There's no male or female. There's no Jew or Gentile. It doesn't matter if you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It doesn't matter if you're kosher or unkosher. What matters is you have a need of righteousness that is not of your own and only one perfect person can provide it and his name is Jesus Christ. So there is a level playing field, which also means all of us might have differing backgrounds. If we interviewed everybody in the room today, we might find out that everybody might have a different starting point. But the most amazing thing that we're going to find in this room today is that we all have the same ending point and it's in Jesus and there is rest in that. Now, I'm not trying to pursue uh, your relationship with the Lord. I'm not trying to pursue exactly what works for you. What I'm trying to pursue is Jesus Christ. I'm not trying to be more holier than you. I'm not trying to be better than you. What I'm trying to do is run after my Father God. That's it. And that's why we're here. If you ever notice what's fascinating about other churches, like um, I got an opportunity to walk through a Catholic church and they had all these statues all over the room. And I was like, this is fascinating because some of them were very beautiful and they all had different purposes, right? They all had different setups. And they were like, well, this guy did this and this guy did that. And I was like, you know what's amazing here at Calvary Chapel? We don't have any statues. You know what we have in this room? Living monuments to the grace of God. That's it. You want to know how good God is? Look at everybody in this room. He chose all of us on our worst day. Now, here's what we can look at. So how do we become children of God is kind of the question that you're seeing here is, weren't we already born children of God? The answer is no. Actually, I've been driving around uh, town, and I've actually seen a few bumper stickers. We are, can't we just all get along? We're just all children of God. Is that true? Absolutely not. In fact, in, and if you look at the beginning in there, verse 27, he said, you were baptized in Christ and have clothed yourself in Christ. The idea is you had to be immersed in Christ, like deep dive into Christ and come out clothed in Christ, which means covered in his righteousness. And then you became children of God. And then you became heirs according to the promise, which means we were something else before we were immersed. What were we before we were immersed? It's a very sad say we were children of something else. Look at Ephesians chapter two, verse three on the screen. It says this, feel the weight of this. All of us, every single person in this room, lived among them at one time, which means lived among the world, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. We were children of wrath. 
Before you became a child of God and adopted through your belief in Jesus Christ, you were a child of wrath. That was your designation. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. Once you were alienated from God, and we were enemies in your mind because of your evil behavior. So who were you before you met Jesus Christ? You were an enemy of God. So you could say, well, I was a good person. I tried to do good. I just haven't met Jesus yet. No, you were considered an enemy of God by rebellion through your sin. Isn't that amazing? And look at that word alienated too on the screen. That's kind of like if you ever watched Dr. Phil. And I was one of these kids. I was a punk. You ever see those young punks, they get in Dr. Phil and say, I want to divorce my parents. And they're like, why? Because they don't let me stay up late and eat sugar and not brush my teeth and skip showers and play video games. They're like, that's why you want to divorce your parents? Well, well, this verse is saying you wanted to be emancipated. You wanted to be separated from God. Why? Only so that you could continue in your evilness. You could continue being an enemy of God. But now we're going to connect these two verses in Romans chapter 5, verse 10. For if while we were God's enemy, you could also put the word while we were children of wrath, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life. I think it was Martin Luther who said, I love Galatians because it's like, I'm going to paraphrase, it's the little, it's the little book of Romans. Have you seen, we've been going through the book of Romans on Wednesdays, how they go side by side. There's a, there's a kinship there. Somebody said, this is like the lunchable version of Romans. And I think you can hear it, but I want you to see what it says. While we were enemies of God, we were reconciled through our obedience to the Ten Commandments. To say that? Well, I, I, was, I got circumcised, and then I was reconciled. No. I was reconciled through the death of the Son. That's the only reason that you can call yourself a Christ follower today is because Christ came to you and said, you were an enemy, and we are at war with each other. And you know what my weapon of choice is? Love. I'm going to conquer you as an enemy, you know, by what? Grace that has been born out of love. That is a good God. That is his presentation to you. That is how he wins the war. How does he win the war? On the cross. And so now I can see in your mind and maybe in your heart, maybe in your eyes today, that you feel the full burden and the weight of that. You were an enemy of God. You were a child of wrath. But now you've been called into something, into the sonship and the adoption of home. That means when you read the Bible, I want you to understand what you're not reading. You're not reading a historical text alone. You're not just reading of a do's and don'ts of Christianity. You know what you're reading? The legacy of your family. So our first point is this. The story of our salvation is the story of our spiritual family and heritage. Every time you pick up the Bible you're reading a love letter from your father to your heart. Every time you are reading the story from Genesis all the way to Revelation, the idea is God is calling you back home to what? To a legacy of grace. It's a house that's built out of love. This is what we're doing. We are talking about uh, the, the adoption process from a child of wrath all the way to becoming a child of God, but through what? Through Christ on the cross and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And at no point did you show up to Jesus Christ and say, I have completed two out of the 10 commandments. How am I doing? Can I get in? No, he came to you and said, you're an enemy. I'd love to turn you into a son. You are a slave. I'd like to turn you into a child. And that is his presentation all the way into verse 
or sorry, verse 1 of chapter 4. Look at this. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this. What I am saying is that as long as an heir is underage, he is no different from a slave. Although he owns the whole estate, the heir is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by the father. This is something that is actually a little bit closer to their, uh, their culture. At the time, the, uh, a father like me, I have two boys, they wouldn't be my sons until a certain age. I would look at them every spring up until the age 15. This is Roman culture, Greek culture. And they would look at their kids every year to, at the springtime and go, hmm, I wonder if they're mature enough to be called my son. And then once they were mature enough to be called their son and receive the inheritance or the promise of the inheritance, the father would take one of his cloaks and put it on the kid and then parade him around the front of the city, the marketplace, and say, here is my son. I identify with him, and he identifies with me. But it only comes by way of a maturing process. You're not automatically included as a child of the father until you have proven yourself to be mature. And that's kind of like his argument that is coming in here is that don't look at the law. The law was never set to be a part of the relationship. The law was just a set of rules that were just to help guide you in life. In fact, sometimes we look at the Old Testament as the rough testament because that's the time that we gave the Ten Commandments, correct? But the Ten Commandments were just a guide. Let me give you the case in point for the guide. When my son was born, I wasn't angry with him when he tried to run into the street after a ball because I was like, I don't want you to get hit by a car. That what I was yelling is the quick, fast stop. I don't want you, let me get in front of you. So Israel as a young nation that is coming out of Egypt has never had a set of rules. They haven't had a nation. They haven't had a governance up to this point. And so the Lord set an established set of rules to say, this is what you are to live by. And it's to protect you. And it's also to show you my heart for you, that I am for you and not against you. But then somewhere along the line, the Jewish people had grabbed a hold of that and turned it into a religion, which means it stopped being a relationship. At no point does my kids come running into uh, the, you know, to the room in the morning going, Father, Father, I've been so kosher today. Do you love me? Or Father, Father, I did six of the Ten Commandments. Do you love me anymore today? That's not the situation. I love you because you're my son and you love me because I'm your father. That is the relationship. You know, think about what he's talking here also to as a, set, as a set of a guardian. I remember, I don't know if you ever grew up and had a babysitter. It used to be when my mom was uh, the lead singer of, a, of the group at church. So she, sometimes she'd have to go to rehearsal. And so I'd have to have a babysitter during the rehearsal. And I just remember this time, like, I'd always think I was so oppressed because the babysitter could do something that I couldn't do at age seven. She could drink sodas after six o'clock. And I was like, look, this lady doesn't even live here. She doesn't have a room here. I'm here every day. I'm the one that does the chores. I clean up after myself. Why does she get to drink a soda after I remember, I'm like, I would voice my complaint to her. And she's like, well, because your mom said. And then I remember the ice would go into the cup. And she'd pour that. She didn't do it like in my face, but I just stood there. Watch that fizz hit that, and hit that ice. And I'd be like, oh, man, what about me? But the truth of the matter is, is you never give sugar, and caffeine to a young one before bed. Amen? Yeah, so there's a thing. But let me just let you know, I had something that she had, didn't have. I had my father's last name. I also had the promise of his presence. I also had his inheritance that he had promised to me beyond all that. 
I had a different connection to the Father than she did. You see, the rules are just the rules. They're to guide and to help and to promote and to maturity. And at no point would you ever just have a, a kid and then hand them the keys without them first being mature to the front door to the car. You would first be wait till they're mature, but first they have to learn the rules. It's kind of like this. You've ever been uh, with kids, um, you know, when they ride a bike, they need those training wheels, right? For a while, that's for a season. And then the training wheels come off and then you go, go. Why? Because they are ready and prepared and mature enough to handle the calling that's before them. And that's the situation here is that we stand before a God who may be growing us, who may be putting us through a set rules and, and regulations, but that's not the religion it's the relationship. Look at verse 3. This is the continuation of that inheritance and the relationship. So verse 3 says, So also when we were under age, we were in slavery under the elemental spiritual forces of the world. The elemental spiritual forces of the world. It's kind of funny. There's a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek action by Paul here. He's specifically saying elemental. You might hear the word elemental and here think, like earth, wind, fire, water, right? And at a time, the people of Gaul, when they were conquered by the Romans, were fire worshipers. That's like one of the things. They worshiped the earth. And so there's a little bit of a tongue in cheek, like that one time you worshiped the elements or followed the elements, but he's actually really saying something closer to this. You used to be in elementary school. There's an elementary school nature to this. You know, sometimes as kids, I would look at my parents and be like, the reason why I'm getting punished is because they hate me. But that's elementary thinking. The older you get, and I will tell you this, if anyone who has ever been a kid and then grown up and had kids, later on you look at your parents a lot different, don't you? You go, wait a minute, now I understand why mom and dad talked the way they did to us. And I understand why they set the rules like they did for us. Remember, I remember before Jackie and I had kids, I was like, I'm going to be the coolest dad we're going to do all the cool stuff. We're going to go to, we're going to, go to like theme parks every day. And we're going to eat ice cream after 8 o'clock. I'm just going to be the coolest dad. The first day that I held my baby, I'm like, you're going to bed. Because <laughs> I love you. Because I said, right? But that's what Paul is addressing. He's like, don't think in the old ways. Think in the new ways that, that you've grown into. You're in the bondage of almost chasing karma. Let me give you the case in point. When these people were under the slavery of following other gods or sin or anything like that, if there was a drought in the world or they, they were being conquered by a neighboring country, you know what they would do? Oh, the gods must hate us. They must be angry with us. So we must appease them. Go grab some virgins and we'll go to the closest volcano and throw them in. And I hope, I hope that makes them happy. And then maybe the rains will come back. That's a tit for tat, right? That's a, what have you done for me lately? But that is not our relationship with the Lord. Pastor Craig so accurately defined last week, you know, it's not what we do for God, it's what God does for us. And the continuation of these verses going into this passage is, I want you to feel that burden of what you used to feel so you don't go back to it. You don't need to go back to elementary thinking. You're not one plus one equals two. That's not where you're at. You've moved on to higher math. And the higher math is this, no matter what my performance is, no matter how good I am, the only thing that is sustaining me in my relationship with God and in this life is his grace. It's not dependent on my performance. I can never think about this. This is how deep God's grace is. I can never be good enough or bad enough to outdo his grace. It's not good Joey equals God's nice to me, bad Joey, I think God hates me. Basic elementary thinking. We are not kites 
blowing in the wind. We are not weather vanes that are being blown around. You know, we are standing on the solid foundation of this. I will never be good enough, but Christ always will be good enough. And he lives in me. And that's the step of maturity that we're taking into. It's not about what I do, it's who I am. And I need to remember who I am. I am the son, or if you're in the crowd today, you are a son or daughter of the most high. And we need to act accordingly. That's the continuation into verse four. Look what he says. But when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that they might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Now look at this part. This is the most important part. The spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Abba, Father. Abba being the Swedish rock group, disco tech. No, just kidding. No, Abba being dad, poppy, pop. That's a different relationship. You know what I love about my kids? I mean, they don't mean it. We all know they're young and innocent. But after service, one of my favorite moments is kind of when the situation arrives, Jackie will bring the kids and they'll come running in here. And it doesn't matter who I'm talking to. It doesn't matter what we're talking about. It doesn't matter how intense or how light the conversation is. My kids will burst into the situation. And they will jump on me and they'll climb all over me like monkeys on a tree. And they'll say this, Daddy, Daddy, I missed you. Now, whether I think that's appropriate or not, you know what was built in them? A confidence that is not built out of religion or out of ritual. It's born out of a, of a relationship that is heart of the father to heart of the children. And they have this confidence that's brimming in them to say this, no matter what's been going on with my day, I know I have dad. One of my favorite things, not that I like to punish my kids, but one of the things that's so sweet is after they've been punished, if I sit there long enough and I just stare at them, they'll stop crying and walk up to me and wrap their arms around me and seek comfort from me, from me. Does that make sense to you? They'll, they'll find solace in my arms for the mess that they made, even though they know I'm disappointed. The place where their sanctuary is where? In the heart of the Father. And at no point are they looking to check off a box. They're looking for somebody to wipe their tears. And that is what he's saying here in this verse is that our humanity is failing under the burden of law. Why would we return to it? Because what we were saved by was the spirit. What we will be sustained by is the spirit. It's an intense moment here when he says the spirit will pull out of you the word dad and father. The word dad is the, the familiarity, like we're close, we're in love with each other. The father is more like I respect you. So look what he's saying here. The spirit calls out of us that we've received our salvation through Jesus Christ. I love you, dad, and I respect you, dad. This is why in Colossians chapter two, Paul would say this. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. And that's what he's saying. When did, when did the law ever control your relationship with the Lord? The whole reason that the Lord presented himself to you is you had a God-sized hole in your heart and only God could fill it. And he presented himself to you as not only you have a problem, but here is the solution and it's my love. It's my love. So when did the spirit ever rely on you to accomplish the 10 commandments? When did the spirit ever rely on you to accomplish anything? In fact, it's because we have received such a great relationship with the Lord and we love the Lord so much that out of our relationship, we want to do right. 
We don't do right and earn God's love. It's because God loved us first that now we go, you know what? I have the peace and love of Jesus Christ. I want to do good. There's a difference between having to and being motivated to. And that's what he's saying right here. I will sanctify you and raise you up continually because I am daddy and I am God and I desire to be your father. And grace is what's defining this position. I remember one time I got into a car accident and I wasn't able to pay for the damages that I accomplished. And I remember my mom showing up and being like, what's going on here? And I, well, I made a mistake. And I pretended, just by the way, to show you how ridiculous we can be in our sin. I said, no, it wasn't me. It was the other guy and blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, we have you on camera. And I said, I think the camera's messed up. You know, it's just like, you know, how many times have we said to the Lord, I think I'm okay or my sin's not as bad as it is. And the Lord's like, roll the tape. It's actually pretty bad. And no, that is you. No matter how much you say it's not, it is you. And then he goes, you know what? I, I will pay the price. You know, it cost my mom a lot to cover that. And I know there was a lot of disappointment in there, but you know what I felt from my mom? She never left my side. She never gave up on me. Didn't mean I wasn't accountable for my sins. It didn't mean I didn't have to pay for it. But you know what I didn't lose? I didn't lose relationship for one second. You know where I am, the person I am today, it's because Christ never left my side, never gave up on me. And when the mess came, he paid the price. And it cost him dearly, did it not? but he was willing to pay. And that shows you the depth of the relationship, not the religion. Look at Romans chapter 8, verses 14 through 16. Once again, we're back in Galatians and, relation, and Romans relationship. For those who are led by the Spirit are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought you your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Remember when I told you the kids come in here, my kids, and run and jump on me and climb all over me, and Daddy, Daddy, and I say, oh, I love you. You know what's happening in that moment as I embrace my kids? Our spirits are testifying of our relationship. Isn't it an amazing thought? that no matter what kind of day you had or what kind of week you had, no matter what your performance is, no matter how bad it is, when you run and jump in God's arms, his spirit testifies as much as your spirit to the goodness of God and the goodness of the relationship. I mean, sometimes we like to think of the Lord as maybe as a heavy taskmaster. Or like, I don't know if you, we've been watching a lot of movies lately where these nuns wrap these, you know, these kids' hands on the, on the desk when they don't do right. Sometimes we think of the Lord like, you did wrong, boom, like that. But we forget that there's a heart of a father that wants to testify of the love that we share. I want you to realize something. Out of all of creation, do you realize that we are the only ones that can share in the God level of love and communication that God has? You know, angels can receive a message. And in fact, the Bible talks about angel messengers receiving messages. So they, that means they had a communication with the Lord. But nobody is considered the children of the Lord except us in creation. We have the unique position of receiving and sharing in the love of the Lord, just like our children or with us and our parents have that one and only place. These are my kids, and they have unfettered access to the parent. Why? Because the Lord is saying, I identify with you. You, you are mine, and I am yours. And I want you to see my heart on display. Look at God's heart in verse 7. So you are no longer a slave, that should be an amen right there. The father collected the children out of slavery. So you are no longer a slave, but 
God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We shouldn't just read over this and gloss over this particular verse because it's a profound uh, presentation of Jesus Christ to our heart. And that presentation is this. You know, the Philippians says that Jesus is the, uh, the visible version of the invisible God, right? So if you want to know what God's heart is for you, this is his heart for you. He wants to convert you into an heir, but also, too, he wants to do it by this heartbeat, grace. Grace. The God, your father, was not happy for you to just be a person out in the world. Think about this, the prodigal son. Remember the prodigal son? He took his father's inheritance before his father died and said, give it to me, I just want to go. I just want to leave. I want to get out of here and do what I want to do. And the father gave it to him. And then he blew all of his money. And then as he's sitting there, destitute, poor, and broke, had to take a job as a pig farmer, which is below kosher for a Jewish person. And he's sitting there going, you know what? My, my father's slaves, my father's servants had a better back at the house. I bet you I could have it better too if I just go home and just be a slave. And he came running home and his father embraced him. And he begged his father to make him a servant. Would his dad have any of it? No, no, you're not to be a slave. No, you are to not be a servant. Why? Remember who you are. You are my child. And as my child, I'd like to throw a big party for you. I'd like to feed you. I don't want you to work for me. I want to feed you. And on top of that, I want you to put on my cloak so that people can see that you're of this royalty. And I also want you to put on my ring so people can see that I identify with you and you identify with me. And I want you to hear that and everything, that you are my heir and you are to act according to it. The past is the past. The present is now. And this is who you are. You are my child. Which brings us to our next point. God exchanged his son to become a slave. A slave to the point of death on the cross, really. So that the slaves of this world or the slaves in this room could become his son. We are in Christ Jesus and Christ Jesus is in us. We need to realize this. We have a special, unique position. God wrote the laws, didn't he? And so as he is the judge, we, it's good to know the judge, isn't it? And so yes, the justice take place. Your sin was equal to death. The wages of sin, your sin, did equal death. But at the same point that you were found guilty by the law, Jesus Christ stood up and said, I will pay that price. So justice was served, wasn't it? A death did pay for your sin. But now what do you do? Even though you're the one that stands accused, even though you're the one that stands guilty, you are now acquitted through Jesus Christ. The judge has done justice, but now you stand justified. Justified. By what? By good works? Absolutely not. By the love of the Father who has acquitted you. That's an amazing position. And also thinking about the prodigal son, what did he do? Why did he convert us from slaves to children? so that we could put on his robe and his ring. Look at 1 Peter 2, 9. What does it say? But you are a chosen people. The father didn't have to have the prodigal son come back, could he? He goes, I don't choose you. I could look at my kids and say, I don't choose you. I give you up. But the father chose you to become what? A royal priest. Not just a priest, a royal priest. A holy nation. God's special possession. You know, even the angels don't have that designation, do they? My special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful life. This status cannot be achieved by showing up and showing God how good you are. Because without God, you know what I am? I'm everything that's the opposite of that. I'm a spiritual beggar. But the Lord in his goodness, his kindness said, here, take my robe. 
Here, take my ring. You know, you think about this. When Christ went to the cross, that's exactly the position that he put you in. He stood before you and said, I see you covered in robes of sin, shame, and guilt. I'd like to exchange with you. Will you, will you let me take that off and put that on the cross on me? And can I put on my righteous robes on you? And that way you could wear that between now and all the way to eternity. And on the way to heaven, when you get to the gates and you wonder, Should I be, do I belong here? Deservedly, no. But as you are invited into the kingdom of heaven because you now wear his righteous robes, you cannot stand there and go, look what I've earned. You go, look what Jesus did. All of us in this room, look what Jesus did. Look where I am at because of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's saying is here. The only reason you're here is because you answered the call. Now look at this verse, verse eight. Formerly when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods, talking about those idols, right? But now that you know God, or rather are known by God, I love that he put that in there, how is it that you are turning back to those weak and miserable forces? Do you wish to be enslaved by them all over again? You're observing special days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that somehow I have wasted my efforts on you. I wouldn't say let you know that um, this is a very intense letter. And I don't know if you guys all know this, but Pastor David Folkerts is our lead pastor, our senior pastor over all the campuses. And if he ever wrote me a letter like this, I would curl up in a ball and die underneath, the, uh, the, underneath my desk. And the reason is, is because the thinker is what he's saying. I have wasted my efforts on you. Why? Because I have presented the gospel and the gospel was good. And you received the gospel and it made you feel good. And now you're trying to pursue, you want to control your destiny in your own power, in your own hands. And how are you doing it? By observing holidays, is that going to save you? You know, Lent is coming up. Can Lent save you? Can communion save you? No, it cannot, but it is a reflection of the goodness that God has brought into your life. So it is a good memorial, but it is not salvation. The only way that we get to heaven is by the Spirit and through the Spirit in belief that Jesus Christ was our Savior. And I will let you know, this is what we're seeing. You see people, you get that knock on the door, right? Hello, can we talk to you? We're Jehovah Witnesses. We want to tell you about all the other ways that you can get saved. Or how about the other people, Seventh-day Adventists, who say, you know what? If you observe this Sabbath, can the Sabbath save you? No, only Jesus Christ can become your Sabbath and give you your rest. And this is the position that we're in. We cannot replace relationship for religion. There is no ritual that's going to save us. Just think about this. Has any laws ever been legislated in the United States of America and all of a sudden people became good? Has a law ever made you want to behave better? No, because why? You are attaching yourself to the punishment. The law always comes with a punishment in mind. But that doesn't propel me to do good. It might motivate me not to get in trouble, but it doesn't make me want to be good. And that's the purpose of the law. And that's the danger of rituals becoming uh, your religion is because you're forgetting who you are and we're starting to become what you do. But my kids will always be my kids. And I will always love them. And just as you guys know that you have a spiritual legacy, that you've been born in this family, you are royal priests in this room. Don't forget who you are. You've been called by God to wear his robes. At what point did we earn this? No but I sure does make me want to make him proud when he puts it on. I am propelled to want to do good things for God for how good he has been to me. God is not propelled to be good to me because how good I've been to him. 
Isn't that rest? You know, I had a friend who worked alongside me at work uh, back when I was in South Florida, and he was observing Ramadan. He was an Islamic person, and we were going back and forth and having a little bit of an apologetics debate. And I said, so, um, so why did you become a Muslim? And he goes, I want to go to heaven. And I go, well, I want to go to heaven too. So we got that in common. So how do you know you go to heaven? He goes, you really don't. I go, explain. He says, when you get to heaven, you're going to dump out all your good rules, all your good things that you've done and all the bad things you've done, and you hope the good outweighs the bad. And I said, you hope? And he said, yeah. And I go, isn't that exhausting? He goes, it's terribly exhausting. That's why I'm observing Ramadan today. I'm trying to not eat all day so I please Allah. And I just went sat back in my chair and I said, Jesus, thank you so much. <laughs> I mean, we can pray and fast too, right? But we don't have to. We get to. The blessed assurance has already been given to us on the cross. You know what I'm chasing? I'm not chasing goodness. I'm chasing the love of the Father that's chasing me. Just think about this. When the good shepherd left the fold, he left the 99 to go find the one. It wasn't because the one was great. He was really bad at being a sheep. He sheeped so bad, he sheeped his way all the way into a thicket and got caught up in the thorns, and wolves were all around and ready to pounce, and that's how bad he was a sheep, and then the Savior showed up to save by grace. So this is the theological conversation that we're having that we're moving now into a very passionate plea from Paul. Look what it says. I plead with you, brothers and sisters, become like me, for I became like you. You did me no wrong. As you know, it was because of an illness that I first preached the gospel to you. And even though my illness was on trial to you, you did not treat me with contempt or scorn. Instead, you welcomed me as if I were an angel of God, as if I were Christ Jesus himself. Where then is your blessing of me now? So basically, just to catch you up before we get to the rest, is he actually got sick around this area. And then some people believe that he was brought into the church to be taken care of, or that in this area, sorry. And he started preaching the gospel because he was just stuck in bed. And as he was preaching the gospel, people go, you know what? I need grace. I need love. I need Jesus Christ. And then behind him came these Judaizers that said, yeah, you need grace and you need Jesus, but you also need to be circumcised or you're going to go to hell. And so Paul was saying, at what point did, did you exchange the grace for the law? Like, you're going in reverse. Look at verse, or the question after that it says, I can testify that if you've done so, you would have torn out your eyes and given them to me. Kind of intense sentence. How come you guys never talk to me like that? I'll tear out my eyes for you, Joe. No, I don't want you to. That'd be freaky. He says, this, have I now become your enemy by telling the truth? Those people are zealous to win you over, but for no good. What they want is to alienate. Remember that word? They want to divorce you from us so that you may have a zeal for them. It is fine to be zealous. It's fine to have rituals, provided the purpose is good. And to be so always, not that I am, not just when I am with you. My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you now and change my tone because I am perplexed by you. What Paul is saying here is very intense. It's a passionate plea. He's saying to you guys right now, even to us to this day, you know what? There's people that are going to come along and they're going to be very zealous about what they believe in. But unless that thing points you to God and points you to his goodness, that thing is no longer good. Communion is good up until it becomes your salvation. And if it tries to replace Jesus Christ, then it is no longer good. Praying is good 
until it becomes a chore for you and you try to check off a box and you replace the prayer for an actual relationship with Jesus Christ. We can't pray to saints. We can't pray to Mary. This is in the word. Unless that thing becomes about Jesus Christ, the very thing that saved you in the first place, then it is no longer good. And if anybody tries to pull you in by their passion or their fervor, it's because they want you to affirm their sin. They want you to affirm their lifestyle. And that is not good enough for Christ because none of us are good enough until we put on Jesus Christ and are submerged in Jesus Christ. And then when we come up clothed in his righteousness, we go, I didn't earn this, but look what Jesus did. I am saved because of his love. And now I am resting in his love, which brings us to this moment. We're gonna catch up to what the book of Galatians has said to us. And we're also going to catch up to what Paul is saying right now. So under grace, we're going to remember who we are. Look at all the things that account for your salvation that have nothing to do with your efforts. You were chosen by God. You didn't choose him. He chose you. Chose you before he laid the foundations of the earth. You were purchased by his blood. You could never ask for that. You could never participate in that. Jesus had to get up on that cross. You were covered by God's righteousness. And then you were united to God by his spirit. Do you know his spirit freely clothes you? The moment you ask for forgiveness and call Jesus your Messiah, you are freely clothed in the righteousness of God. Which brings us to the last point. We are made royal heirs to the kingdom. We earn nothing. We receive everything. And as we've seen through the book of Galatians, our only job is to do what? Believe. Like, that's the easiest thing. Here's the truth. Believe in it. That's your participation. You know what I brought to the relationship? Sin and disobedience. Here, I dump it out. Jesus, deal with it. He deals with it. Now, what's my job? Believe. Believe that Jesus Christ, like a good friend, was like, yo, you're dirty. You smell. You know, that's a good friend, right? Someone who doesn't work around your stink. We're going to the shower. Take a shower right now. That's a good friend. Doesn't leave you where you're at. Doesn't look past you, looks through your situation and goes, what can I do for you today? And the truth is, is that we needed the blood of Jesus Christ today and every day. Not at the point of salvation. I need him just as much today as I needed him on the, on the day of my salvation. So we're going to close with this prayer. We're going to put up a, a picture on the screen. I'm going to invite Rachel to come up just to play behind the, the prayer. And this is what I want you to notice. We have a picture of Jesus Christ here with thorns on his head. You know, we keep talking about the heirs of the promise, and we talk about Abraham, and we talk about what Abraham went through. And you know, there's a certain point in Abraham's uh, walk with the Lord, the Lord asked him to sacrifice his son up on a mountain. And he got called up to that mountain, right? And as he got called up to that mountain, he was like, I don't know what's going to happen, but I guess I have to sacrifice my son. I believe the Lord's going to take care of us. And an angel stopped and said, no, there's a ram over there in the thicket. The Lord said, I will provide. You have a need and I will provide. You have an entirely desperate situation that you can't pay for and I will pay the price. And there was a ram caught in the thicket. Let me put you in another perspective. There was a ram caught in the thorns and the Lord provided a sacrifice. And then we fast forward to the future, the same mountain, same area, same situation. We have a person, a lamb, the lamb of God with thorns being pressed into his head. But you know what was on his mind? You. Just you. Only you. All of us. He says, if I don't do, they can't. If I don't do, they won't. 
I will exchange my sonship so that they can exchange their slavery to wrath and being an enemy of God to now being called children of God. So if we can, we normally bow our heads and close our eyes, and if you want to do that, it's fine, but I'm going to encourage you to look at the picture on the screen and see all that Christ has done for you. See how much God thinks about you. See how much the Lord loves you. And if you want to pray this prayer with me in your heart, in your mind, dear Lord, forgive me. Forgive me for all that I've done. Forgive me for my disbelief. Forgive me for my failure. Thank you for me running away in rebellion and sin and you coming to collect me. What a position to be in, to be collected by the God I rejected. And so, Lord, I just pray right now, this is the truth. I need you. If there's secret sin in this room today, I just want to let you know the Lord knows, so it's not very secret. He crawled up on that cross with your sin in mind, even the one you're trying to hide from yourself. Would you just receive his grace today? Would you receive his love today? Would you be released from that? Would you find freedom from that slavery and say, Lord, you are my savior, you are my Lord, you're my master, but you're also my dad. Please catch me. Catch me where I'm at. Love me where I'm at. Lift me up into heavenly places. Lord, clothe me in your righteousness. Let me wear your name because I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. It's not by merit. It's not by performance. It's because you love me. We are justified. We are justified because we believe that you are our Savior. And in truth, you are our Savior. Through your death, burial, and resurrection, I am made whole. I am made a child of God. I am made yours. I am no longer belonging to sin. I belong to you. And I love you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.